0: Hi. This is the Clyde Carter Bible Study, and I'm Bob Dickinson, the current leader of this ongoing study at New Horizon United Methodist Church in Southwest Ranches, Florida. Today, Craig Chaddock and I will be studying Isaiah chapters one and two. So we invite you to grab your Bibles and join with us. Our primary choice of translations is the New International Version, but we will occasionally use other translations when they're helpful.
1: I had some some thoughts about. Isaiah. Okay. His name literally means, I'm told, from the original language, "the Lord saves," which is a pretty astounding name to have.
0: Yeah, i I'd, I'd uh, that'd be a handle for sure.
1: He was a contemporary of Amos and Hosea and Micah, all three of which are published prophets in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And they were contemporaries, so there could be some overlap and, and mashing. I have not studied those three with that thought in mind, mm-hmm. but it's interesting that it's there. And I one of the things I intend to do is is kind of cross-reference the four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least in my mind. I don't know whether I can do it in writing. His greatest influence is being Isaiah's greatest influence was under King Hezekiah. He also served a number of other kings, but Hezekiah, I guess, and he were the closest. There are some people that believe the first uh, 39 chapters was written by Isaiah, and chapters 40 through 66 was written by an other or others
0: successors yeah
1: but all under the umbrella of the name of the prophet isaiah
0: uh-huh.
1: however many believe that that is not uh, correct because the the words used in both are so similar and the words used by isaiah tend to be his and not used very much in the rest of the old testament So they are thinking that even though there is a natural break between chapters 39 and 40, it was Isaiah on both sides of the break. There are at least 25 Hebrew words or word forms found in Isaiah in both major divisions of the book, that occur in no other place in uh, the prophetic writings, which again tends to tie the two together. Several New Testament verses, when Jesus spoke, he used Isaiah, Uh and he used Isaiah's words, and they, from both sections. So again, it was... Considered to be a single authorship. One of the themes that Isaiah used and was used elsewhere, but not as as readily as he, is the Holy One of Israel. Uh He was the one who first brought to mind that a king descended from David will reign in righteousness. He didn't know who or when, and he didn't have a way of telling us, but he was the one that introduced Jesus. The prophet's vocabulary is extraordinary. He uses nearly 2,200 different Hebrew words or word sets more than any other Old Testament writer. So he was an educated and intelligent man. Those are the highlights I found.
0: In talking about prophets, the office of prophet is one of the things that we might want to discuss. Basically, these are people who receive messages from God and they, the messages from God are not always well received by those to whom they are sent. Lots of times the prophets speak and then the king that's in power at the time is not receiving good news when the prophets speak. He may say, we're going in the wrong direction and unless you turn around, do things differently, the whole world's coming down around your ears. Not things that kings like to get told.
1: Or anybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>, that too. <laughs> we sort of assume that our record, the Bible, is the only measure of, of standard to look at old, older literature and, and try to understand its place. But in broader scholarship, that part of the Middle East, uh, some 50 or 60 prophets in different countries that have writings not not all that different from Isaiah, but very distinct. Isaiah's message is one that remains, as you say, consistent over the, the whole book. There may be up to three divisions. Uh, the first one, which, which is the initial word, the second one seems to be, uh, words of people who are coming back or getting ready to come back out of, out of captivity, uh, and come back to their land which is in ruins and their city which is decimated. And the third one seems to be encouragement to the people as they are trying to rebuild. And it's a long and dusty and hot and unforgiving not necessarily rewarding venture. And so in each of those different settings, the prophet speaks to the problems that the people are facing in that particular part of the process. Mm-hmm. We know there's the prophets of, of Baal, and Ishtar is the other one that uh, has major writings. In the process of this time, the people of Israel are dealing with at least three different nation groups who are trying to overrun them, oversee them, hold them in subjection. There's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians, each of whom had a a period where they were the rulers who had power over the land, the ground of Israel at that particular time. And the rules that they used to deal with Israelites were different, each one's as they come along. The prophet is speaking to God's word to the people as they deal with the Assyrians, as they deal with the Babylonians, as they deal with the Persians. Just like there was a difference between Trump and Biden and the way they ran the country, the same was true of the different national uh, entities that, that came through and ran the country uh, of Israel. There's a a sense that if you're in the midst of People who whose agenda is going this way, here are the things that the Lord needs you to hear and remember, and stay clear of, and hold true to. If you're in the middle of a people that are going that way, you know they're setting up puppet kings and having this be the the agenda. Then the set of problems that the people are dealing with is different. It's not that God's word is changing from here to here. It's just the situation is changing, and God says, okay, here's what we need to do now. Now, Later on in the, in the two-century span that, that is covered by Isaiah, here's what we need to do in this case. So we look at it, and it's not that there's a different, uh, you know, God's changed his mind and, and wants something different. Mm-hmm. It's that here's the word of the Lord. Coming to you in the midst of the rapids at the top of uh, the gorge, and and here's the word of the Lord coming to you in the calm section in, in between the the rapids at the top and the rapids at the bottom, and, and so it's contextual and the context makes a difference, but it's also the same Lord that's speaking and the same place that He's taking them to. It's just there's a big rock under this part of the underwater hydraulic over on this side of the stream and you need to go through the left hand channel, not the right hand channel.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the things that seemed to spark my understanding is much of Isaiah's complaint about how Israel and Judah were operating can very much be applied to, to the United States today. It it amazes me, the, the position. Isaiah definitely had future prophecies, many of them. But he also had a lot to say about what was going on right now.
0: Current situation,
1: yeah. And getting it back in the first chapter and I'm reading from uh, the message the words of the NIV, for instance, and the words of the prophet are, the message rather, are different, but the thought is the same. In the first chapter, he talks about the vision that Isaiah had regarding Judah and Jerusalem during the time of the kings of Judah, Uzziah, Iachem, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. But he starts out by basically saying, Heaven and earth, you are the jury. Listen to God's case. God speaking. I had children and raised them well, and they turned on me. The ox knows whose boss. The mule knows the hand that feeds him, but not Israel. My people don't know up from down. Shame. Misguided God dropouts. Staggering under their guilt baggage. Gangs of miscreants, bands of vandals, my people have walked out on me. Their God turned their back on the Holy One of Israel, walked off, and never looked back. That's kind of a, a fantastic, first statement of the attorney representing God.
0: Yeah, it almost sounds like the opening uh, statement in a in a trial. Yeah. Uh, Here's where we are, and uh, you folks over here in the jury, listen up, because this is what's going on.
1: Why bother even trying to do anything with you when you just keep to your bullheaded ways? You keep beating your heads against brick walls. Everything within you protests against you, from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head. Nothing's working right. Wounds and bruises... Are running sores, untended, unwashed, unbandaged. Your country is laid waste. Your cities burned down. Your land is destroyed by outsiders, while you watch, reduced to rubble, to rubble by barbarians. As you point out, most kings aren't happy with that opening
0: statement. <laughs> they would not get. Uh... Amicus curiae status, uh, the friend of the court. Picking it up at at, uh,
1: verse 8. Daughter Zion is deserted, like a tumbled-down shack on a dead-end street, like a tar-paper shanty on the wrong side of the tracks, like a sinking ship abandoned by the rats. The god of the angel armies hadn't. Left us a few survivors. If he had not left us a few survivors, we'd be as desolate
0: as Sodom, doomed, just like Gomorrah. The daughters of Zion, the daughter of Zion is left like the shelter in the vineyard, like the hut in the field of melons, like the city under siege. These are the, the same same verses in the uh, NIV. Unless the army of the Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. NIV is comfortable because we recognize it. There are lots of passages from Isaiah that we don't know where, you know, we know that they're part of our spiritual background. We know that this is truth of God. We just have no idea where to find it. Yeah. (laughs) Here it is right here in Isaiah.
1: Continuing on, listen to my message, you Sodom-schooled leaders. Receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah-schooled people. Why this frenzy of sacrifices, God is asking. Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs and goats? When you come folk, before me, Whoever gave you that idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship.
0: Now, it wasn't the king that those verses got in their knickers. It was uh, the priestly class now mm-hmm. that's uh, under attack. You know, if somebody came in and, and raced Rafe up in front of the congregation and said, uh, Your your preaching is like the babbling of uh, infants that don't know what they're doing. Uh, You have no idea how to run a church. You have no idea how to take an offering. You have no idea what to do with it when you got it. Dummy. I think that's roughly the same context. Yeah, yeah. Quit
1: your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings... Meetings, meetings, meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go on right on sinning. When you put your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or how loud or how often you pray, I'm just not listening. I do know why. And do you? Because you've been tearing people to pieces. Your hands are bloody. Go home. Wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so don't have to look at at them. I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. It's kind of like, as I look at America today, even in our churches, we tend to have cliques. We tend to have groups that sort of hang together. They all sit in the same rows of the pews. There's nothing basically wrong with that, except that it's 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 tends to be exclusionary. Well, this is this is the. Uh, the Wednesday morning group, and this is the Saturday morning group, and I hear Isaiah in my mind saying, stop with it. Worship is for worship. Joy is for joy. Take care of everybody.
0: I don't know if you've caught on to it, but sometimes preachers have strange habits. In our Sanctuary where there are no pews, there are no, uh, set patterns for the chairs, uh, there's a way that we normally always set them up. My habit was to change the seating arrangements, uh, at least every three weeks, sometimes every week, change the way that the chairs were put out. So that all of the people who sit together in this little pile of people over here now, I don't know if you've ever watched chickens, but when a chicken gets wet, it gets really mad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you hear Matt is an old wet hen. Well, they they do act a whole lot like that, and eventually they catch a vision of themselves in the mirror of their mind and see, why am I doing that? You know, the, the choir is notorious uh, because they are... They see themselves as worship leaders and they are. They see themselves as people who are over and above the rest of the congregation because they give more time in order to prepare and be ready for Sunday and they they have special dresses dress codes, you know, robes and yokes and everything else and if you want to really have fun you ought to change the seating in the choir
1: loft. <laughs> God again is speaking through the prophet, and he says, come, sit down, let's argue this out. This is God's message. If your sins are blood red, they'll be snow white. If they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. If you're willing to obey, you'll feast like kings. But if you're willful and stubborn, you die like dogs. That's
0: right, God says so. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That sings. Probably the Messiah. Almost everything comes from the Messiah. (laughs) (laughs) From Handel's Messiah.
1: (laughs) Exactly. He goes on and says, "Can you believe it? The Chase City has become a whore. She was once all justice." Everyone living as good neighbors. And now they're all at one another's throats. Your coins are all counterfeits. Your wine is watered down. Your leaders are turncoats who keep company with crooks. They sell themselves to the highest bidder and grab anything not nailed down. They never stand up for the homeless, never stick up for the defenseless. This decree, therefore, of the Master. God of the angel armies, the strong one of Israel, this is it. I get my oppressors off my back. I get back to my enemies. I'll give you the back of my hand, purge the junk from your life, clean you up. I'll set honest judges and wise counselors among you, just like it was back in the beginning. Then you'll be renamed. City that treats people right the true blue city. God's right ways will put Zion right again. God's right actions will restore her pretensions, but it's curtains for the rebels and God traitors. A dead end for those who walk out on God. Your dalliances in those oak grove shrines will leave you looking mighty foolish all that fooling around in God, the godless gardens that you thought was the latest thing, you'll end up like an oak tree with all its leaves falling off, like an unwatered garden withered and brown. The big man will turn out to be dead bark and twigs, and his work, the spark that starts the fire, that explodes man, exposes man and work both, as nothing but
0: cinders and smoke. There's a part of us, when we gather together to worship, we presume we're doing something that's pleasing to God. And if we got some young preacher come into town that stands up and runs a revival on the front yard of our church and says all of of these church-going folks are uh, rotting meat that stinks to heaven, we'd probably take umbrage at that. Well, we tend to get set in our ways.
1: I have an ongoing wrestling match in my head with our pastor. He's a wonderful guy, well-educated, good preacher, presents well. But it's little things. We have two worship times every Sunday. Mm -hmm. The first is defined as traditional. We use the traditional order of service. We use the traditional hymns. Music is led by an organ, which, interestingly enough, was not the original plan. When the organ was introduced, most churches shunned it terribly. They Mm -hmm. thought it belonged in a honky-tonk or something. But now it has become the traditional instrument. If you don't have an
0: organ, you don't have a church.
1: Yeah. Our late service, with most of the... Gloria Day people that left after uh, Pastor Darrell left and went to our Savior, they attend the later service. So I attend the later service because that's where I have the most people I know and know me. I'm not sure that's a good reason, but that's quite frankly the reason. (laughs) But Tony changes things up. In that service, we have zero organ music. The music is all led by a guitar, a drum, uh, and a violin. Those three musical instruments lead the music. And it's very fine, but kind of what gets me is Tony changes. In the early service, he wears the traditional pastor's uniform with collar. I don't know why it's important to me, but it is. In the later service, he wears a sports coat, no collar, no no robes, no uh, stoles, nothing. He could be a used car salesman, and I have to admit, and I pray about it. I have to uh, guess at least weekly, and sometimes daily. What's wrong with me? Why do I bristle? I even went to him one time and suggested. I said, you know, I find robes uncomfortable. I'm hot. I stumble over them. I step on them and lurch forward. So I, I understand. But the collar. collar somehow identifies the pastor as being just a shade different than the rest of us. And there's nothing in Scripture, I've looked, (laughs) that says you have to wear a collar, or you have to wear anything. There's certain garb that was prescribed for the uh, temple in Deuteronomy and and, uh, Leviticus, but that has long since passed.
0: My congregations would have the same problem with me. I've been known to... uh, Well, I preached one sermon where I had a bag of black cow manure on my shoulder for the entire service. Part of it, I got up on a ladder and preached uh, from out in the middle of the congregation. I got up on a ladder and preached from up there. Part of it was to get people to look at where the stinky stuff was in their life and what it was that God's forgiveness offered them that was different than what the rest of the world had to offer. For me, preaching became a uh, an event wherein God's Word was encountered in some way that clunked with the rest of our experience. You know how when you get a new car, it runs smoothly and everything is wonderful, and then one day it goes clunk and quits working. And now... Everything changes. Uh, you have to either pay six months' salary to get it fixed, or you have to pay a year's salary to to buy a new one and everything is set off kilter and out of whack. It takes a long time to recover from get back on on the path and get things going. Get all your ducks in a row
1: yeah well, optic lessons are are very, very good usually because they, they're kind of like parables, that when Jesus taught, he used things around him. He talked about birds and, and trees and olives. and He used an object to root the thought in your mind. And I don't have a problem with that. I might have been a little disconcerted if I saw you with a bag of manure on your shoulder. But <laughs> uh,
0: I didn't have a collar on when
1: I did that. <laughs> but object lessons are very scriptural in my mind. It's exactly what Jesus did when he taught. He used object lessons. That's what the parables were. He took things that people could relate to. A man walking down the, the uh, road gets hit by a gang and gets robbed and beaten and left for dead. I remember Harry had that problem. The trappings collar somehow sets me in a perspective. And I know it's my problem, not his. He, by the way, listens carefully to everything I say, does almost nothing that I ask, but he listens <laughs> <laughs> and then prays for me. <laughs>
0: When I think about that story, the first thing that uh, leaps to my mind is when they hear about this guy walking down that road alone, Mm -hmm. everybody around is saying, damn fool, why is he doing that? Yeah. Because they know. You know, that that place is infested with drug users and uh, gangs and all sorts of things that will chew you up. The only way around it is to go in a group, have enough folks so that, you can go safely, and anybody that wanders down that road alone deserves what they get, is almost the tenor and flavor of what the community expectation would have been. We've uh, just come through the Christmas
1: pageantry, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm reminded that uh, when the wise men came to Jerusalem, the whole city was aware of it. Mm-hmm. Television hadn't been invented yet. The radio had not been invented. Why would they be so amazed? Three little kings from far away. Well, the three little kings were probably served by 300
0: servants. Entourage.
1: And they were protected by probably 600 of the crack troops when the three kings came in, it was that uh, no. everyone in the, in the in the city knew there was something up. Even the the people were saying, "What's what? What's going on? Why is this happening?" They traveled that way to avoid being attacked. The king carried precious gifts for the king that they felt was being announced by the star, and so. They were rich. They had valuable things that anybody who was a crook would be delighted to take off your hands. And so they had protection.
0: You knew they were coming because they had the band out front playing When the Saints Come Marching. There you go.
1: There you go. That's it. That's it. So I understand that part of it. It makes sense in my mind. And like I said, the robes and the stoles... Uh, They are beautiful and and I think help set the scene in special days, holy week and and such. But the collar is such a little, but I can never mistake somebody wearing the collar for a non-cleric.
0: I don't know if anybody you know ever talks about this, but when I would go into my office and get my preaching robe out of the closet and put it on. A lot of different things happened. One of the things was there was a a sense of defense built in. I could say, you know, and I had to genuinely make sure I was in the Word of God and proclaiming it as I understood it. My proclamation was flavored by the pastors who were teaching in seminary when I came through. And they were mainly a product of the civil rights upheaval in the South. They were local pastors who had taken a position to defend what the biblical word was, which made them unappointable in the South. So they sent them to seminary to teach. And then then they produced a whole raft of people who thought that the way pastors ought to act is to be change agents and weather vanes and uh, local community activists to change the landscape of the country they lived in so that it looked more like. Putting on the vestments was, in a way, taking the focus off Bob Dickinson and putting it on the carrier of the Word of God. I felt invulnerable is probably the right word to say, that no matter how much they didn't want to hear what I had to say, they they uh, were required to listen.
1: Well, and their argument wasn't really with you. It was with the one you
0: were speaking for. God. Sometimes it was with me because the last guy didn't talk like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And... We tend to get set in our ways.
0: I was the guy with the bucket of water uh, looking for the chicken to throw it on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we kind of got off topic a little bit, but...
0: Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure we did, because I think that Isaiah may have been the guy with the bucket of water. Yep, <laughs> yep. I, I think you're right. And this, this, this first
1: chapter very much sets the stage when he says, Hey, you be the judge. Here's God's point of view. Can you understand where he's at?
0: It's almost like the people are given a safe position to watch from as God has an argument with the king. And as he's having an argument with the king and he says, by the way, you guys in the jury box, you're doing the same darn thing. There isn't very many safe places in in that operation. The guy bringing the message is uh, kind of in the same category as uh, John the Baptist a guy could lose his head over something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so the office of profit has its dangers as well as its advantages. There are a class of people who want to be, who see themselves as bringers of righteousness. If I can live my life according to God's standard so perfectly that anyone who looks at me sees what a righteous person looks like and would follow me, There's a a haughtiness in that that is just really ugly. I see that in other clerics where they
1: tend to wear the badge and say, look, I'm the sheriff, you follow what I say. And I find that offensive, yes. But I think you can go the other way too far. You can be the, it's kind of like parenting. There are some parents that uh, are very authoritarian, and you do this, do that, do that, uh, and you don't, the kid gets swatted, or whatever the case might be. Then there are other parents that want to be your buddy and your friend. They want to just, you know, well, I don't think you should do it, but if you do it, maybe I can come along. I mean, it's, um... And either one tends to be an extreme that doesn't work all the time. And then we have Isaiah, who says, you dummies... Why do you worship this way? Why did you do this? Who told you to do all that?
0: I have, in recent weeks, taken advantage of the Internet to go to Hillsdale College and take some courses. you now
1: know everything about the Constitution.
0: (laughs) Well, it is interesting from the standpoint of when I talk to other people that have been engaged in the Hillsdale process, I recognize that we talk the same language and we have code words that mean, you know, this is what this code word means and that's what that code word means. And we talk in almost a classified jargon that only the insiders know. When Isaiah wrote it down, now all of a sudden, well... Initially, this wasn't written down. Initially, this is verbal storytelling that probably didn't get written until after the end or towards the end of Isaiah's, the Isaiah College experience when all of the graduates had gone out and started creating their own little piles of people that understood uh, how to talk Isaiah talk. And now, we can write it down. You know, when the king first heard it uh, firsthand, he was mad as a wet hen. When the religious folks uh, of the day heard it, they were mad. Everybody, he said it was the word of God, but nobody that was in this pile or that pile could see the word of God in him, anything he said. There was just this crazy group of folks talking amongst themselves. And then the next invaders came through, and the next invaders came through, and after the third set of invaders came through, they began to recognize, oh, that's what he meant. Oh, we've been doing that. We've been guilty of that. And when Isaiah thundered that from the rooftops, nobody wanted to hear it. But when they saw the the piles of bones of the people that ended up dead because of it, then they could start to see it and know it and believe it. So this prophecy stuff has a sharp edge to it. And the initial encounter with it is very uncomfortable and is liable to get the prophet run out of town on a rail. And then when other folks begin to hear and listen and, and understand, then it becomes, well, maybe there's something in that. And then after the third set of conquerors come through and said, You know, if we'd listened to him at the first time he said that, 80% of this wouldn't have happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: The office of prophet is not one that most people want. Description of a pastor is he is three things. He's a a prophet, a priest, and a king. And each of those offices, the the king is the administrative, uh, you know, this is how it's going to be done. And uh, we need to have a budget and we need to do the you know, all of these kind of things that make it work. The priest is the one that comes by and stands next to you in the midst of terrible times and helps you deal with them. The prophet is the one that tells you what's coming next.
1: Well, yes, he's the proclamation. Prophet doesn't always deal in future. I
0: I would argue with he is the proclamation. He he may be the proclaimer. But the proclamation is...
1: Better Better phrasing. You're right. Okay. You're right.
0: Well, I think our folks are getting an earful here. <laughs> and, <laughs>
1: I think so, too. And I'm okay. delighted that they're listening.
0: Okay, continuing on.
1: Just real quick as a summary. Eugene Peterson, alas, I don't think he's a Lutheran. But he has some good thoughts sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he shares this thought looking at the entire book of Isaiah. Symphony is the term many find useful to capture the fusion of simplicity and the complexity presented in the book of Isaiah. The major thrust is clearly God's work of salvation. The salvation is symphony. The name Isaiah means God saves. The prominent themes repeated and developed throughout this vast symphonic work our judgment, comfort, and hope. All three elements are present on nearly every page, but each also gives distinctions to the three movements of the book that so powerfully enacts salvation. Message judgments are most which where we are now, chapters 1 through 39. Messages of comfort are chapters 40 through 55. And finally, the frosting on the cake, Messages of Hope, chapters 56 to 66. So we have judgment, comfort, and hope. And as I said, we're we're kind of dealing with the judgment sections in our discussions this morning. But there's more to come.
0: And as you think about it in those terms, some of the passages are right in your face. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know... You're doing this right now. Cut it out. Some of them are. I don't know why I put up with you all, because the only thing you keep doing is the same old stuff that uh, didn't impress me the first time you did it. Yeah. And then there's the hope. Anyway, hmm. it's
1: going to be a great study in Isaiah. Yes. Uh, we 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 now have uh, we have only sixty five. More chapters after this one.
0: (laughs) Well, the good news about Bible study is you get to break it up into bites that you can chew on instead of having to swallow the whole thing at once. It takes all of it to make any sense, but you don't have to eat it all at one time. Let's see, where did we leave off at? Did we finish the first chapter? I think so. Okay. Then we better go to the second chapter. I do enjoy the message because it. makes it so much clearer. My only argument with it is is sometimes it only, it doesn't present all of the depth and breadth of it. It chooses one line to make a coherent. Well,
1: it's not poetic. No. And and, uh, part of the beauty of Isaiah are some of its most uh, uh, memorable passages are very poetic.
0: Yes, they sing.
1: Uh, But uh, Eugene Peterson does a good job of of putting it into today's language. Chapter 2 starts out the message Isaiah got regarding Judah and Jerusalem. There's a day coming when the mountain of God's house will be the mountain, solid, towering over all mountains. All nations will river toward it. People from all over set out for it. They'll say, come, let's climb God's mountain. Go to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll show us the way he works so we can live the way we're made. Zion's the source of revelation. God's message comes from Jerusalem. He'll settle things fairly between nations. He'll make things right between many peoples. They'll turn their swords into shovels, their spears into hoes. No more will nations fight, nation. They won't play war anymore. Come, family of Jacob, let's live in the light of God.
0: I ain't going to study war no more?
1: Yep. And again, Isaiah's message could be to us today.
0: And there are so many wars that we're involved in. You know, the, the struggle over the direction the country's going in, the struggle over um, what do we do? about guns and spears and knives and instruments of war. What do we do about people who just get left behind and left out and not cared for? Those wars are becoming more active as they gain more vocalosity, gain a voice to speak that people can hear. But sometimes the measures they have to go to to be heard are so far out that it's repugnant. Why did you have to burn a police station to make me hear that?
1: Yeah, it's a a tough time. But God still is in charge. Yes. And I think Isaiah is telling that to his people in his day, and he's telling it to us in our day. God's in charge.
0: God, you've walked out on your family of Jacob because their world is full of hokey religion, Listing witchcraft, pagan hocus pocus, world rolling in wealth, stuffed with thing, no end to the machine, its machines and gadgets, the god, small g, god of all the sorts and sizes. These people make their own gods and worship them, worship what they've made. Degenerate race, face down in the gutter. Don't bother them. They're not worth forgiving. I think that's true verse 8 i think mm-hmm. head for the hills high in the caves
1: from the terror of god from his dazzling presence people with a big head are headed for a fall pretentious egos brought down a peg it's god's alone in front and center in the day we're all talking about the day that the god of the angel armies is marching against all big talking rivals, against all swaggering big names, against all giant sequoias, largely, hugely towering, and against the expanse chestnut, against Kilimanjaro and Anna uh, Purina, against the ranges of Alps and Art Andes, against every soaring skyscraper against all proud Buddhists all, all, and statues, against ocean-going luxury liners, against elegant three-masted schooners. The swelling big heads will be punctured bladders, the pretentious egos brought down to earth, leaving God alone at front and center. We're talking about.
0: He was doing fine up to the point where he went after the three-masted schooners. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that one hurt. I think what he's trying to say here, but what he's doing better than trying, it, what he's saying is that our lives tend to get
1: so cluttered with plans and thoughts and things and hopes. and he's, God's in charge. God's handling it. Will there be times when we suffer? Yes. Will there be times when maybe it's even God allowing the chastisement. Just like he allowed uh, Israel to be chastised over and over again. The entire uh, Old Testament is filled with the the rising and falling of, of uh, the Jewish people. They listened, they turned their back, they stopped listening, and they did their thing, God punished them. Then they cried out for help. They listened, and it's a, it's up and down we're still on the trolley car.
0: interesting part about the trolley is when it when you hit the the top of the hill in San Francisco that leads down to the wharf, if it weren't for all the cars coming up that were being pulled by the same cable that's pulling you that down. you're pulling down, it'd be one heck of a ride, yeah. You only ride that once.
1: (laughs) But I think that's what Isaiah is saying, even in the first chapter when he says, this is God's case. Listen to it. Do you understand? You have missed the point over and over and over again. And again, I, I don't know if I read into it properly, but... I sense Isaiah speaking to us. Yes,
0: yes. Isaiah is one of one of the voices that uh, you know. I talked about the putting on the robe and investments, stepping out of myself and becoming uh, a deliverer of God's message. Yeah, and I hope I'm faithful to it every time I make that change.
1: Well, my only
0: suggestion is
1: drop the bag of manure and put the collar on.
0: (laughs) There are a few Methodists that wear those. And may God bless them richly.
1: (laughs) There are a few Lutherans that don't. Yes. And I'm wrestling with that. But if that's my biggest problem, I think I'm in pretty good shape.
0: What does the collar represent to you?
1: An identification. It's a badge, so to speak. It, it's saying I'm a cleric. The the Roman Church tends to call their priest father, mm-hmm. which is uh, a term indicating a, a a step above whatever level I'm on. We don't use that term, but um, if you walk into a a room with 50 people, someone wearing the collar is immediately identified as somewhere in the hierarchy a cleric. It could be Catholic, it could be Lutheran, it could be Methodist, it could be... I don't think the Baptists worry about this very much. Baptists don't seem to have collars. They, They are collarless. Colorless, colorless. <laughs> we can go on with that, but that's not fair. <laughs> but it it separates. Police wear a badge. Why do they wear a badge? Well, I think they wear a badge because the badge says they represent the law or the maintenance of of law and order. They don't have to wear a badge. They aren't less of a police person if they don't wear a badge. But the badge identifies them. And I think the collar identifies the cleric.
0: As a non-collared cleric, I always thought that quality of the life that I live was more the badge of office than a piece of clothing around my neck. Yes, but people don't
1: see that initially. They have to be around you. They have to be with you over a period of time to understand that quality. But I agree, yes, how you live, and that's exactly what Isaiah is saying to the people of Israel. He's saying, hey, you step and fetch, you do all these different things, your religion, religion, meetings, 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 that's not what God looks for, it's not what he needs, it's not even what he wants. And that, that I think, was one of the reasons why he identified certain garbs to be worn by the priests when they were making the sacrifices when they went in to the holy of holies it set them apart and i think that that's what the collar does today doesn't make them more holy doesn't make them better people in fact some of the greatest hypocrites around might have wearing a collar but it it sets the mood Am I off in the weeds somewhere?
0: If you don't wear the collar, then the challenge becomes how do you live so that they know you're a pastor without having to be told. Okay. And that requires more discipline, more
1: responsibility,
0: almost uh, act by act a consideration of what you're doing and how others, and not how others would see it, but how God would see it. Uh, is this an accurate reflection of what Christ would do if he were in this situation? Calls to the class, uh, yesterday. Normally I do those in a, in a room, in a private room. But yesterday Susie had to be in the office. After a four or five calls, she called me on it and said, uh, you're just doing a rope thing here. You're not, you're not ministering to the needs of these people. Uh, Stopped me in my tracks, smarted, uh it uh made me get up and walk away from the desk and walk around the lake and uh consider what I was doing and why I was doing it and how I was doing it and then she Isaiahed me. <laughs> Next
1: week we will attack uh chapters three and four, maybe even five and six, maybe only a couple of verses.
0: I thank you for your time. For your wisdom and for your patience and...
1: Well, I get more out of this, I think, than you do.